Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. So chapter 12, starting with verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I possess, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to, the people, speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp? How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? And so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. 
If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. And now we'll jump to verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of, the pro of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But, every, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is the word of the Lord. Fun topic today. Good morning, church. I hope you guys are doing well this beautiful, brisk, cool, wonderful day. Uh, we're getting towards our time, uh, towards the end of our time in the, uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Um, and it's been a wonderful time in this letter. I hope you got a lot out of it. I know I've gotten a lot out of uh, preparing in our time for this and having numerous discussions. I love this little church in Corinth and I love this letter to this church in Corinth. There were some messed up, there was a messed up church with messed up people and I love that because aren't we all? I love the fact that this church had so many issues, they had so many questions. They were this struggling little church, they wrote to Paul, and even after just a little bit of time, they were like, Paul, we're struggling with this. Paul, this is happening. Paul, this. And Paul's like, why is this happening, guys? And it happens because we're all sinful people. And we're all messed up people who need Jesus and need each other. I hope you see that point. Last week, I spoke about how we are like the body, and we need each other. The hand needs a foot, and the foot needs a tongue. Wait. That sounds weird. But the body needs all those things. This is a quick aside, but please hear me on this. Yes, I know the church isn't perfect. And I, church, I know a church might have messed up in the past with you. Please don't use that as an excuse not to commit and not to join a church. Can I say that again? The church is not perfect. The church in Corinth wasn't perfect and church at Waypoint is not perfect. We've messed up, and maybe in some churches in your life, you've experienced, you've had bad experience in church, you've had drama, the church has burned you, the church has burned your parents. Maybe you're a pastor's kid, and you won't believe all the things that they've gone through. And you're here today, and you're like, oh, I just always want to keep the church at arm's length. And can I tell you something, is I know, I know the church has messed up, and we'll probably mess up again. And I'm sorry that you've been hurt by the church. 
But as a Christian, you are made to be in Christian community. As a believer, you're made to be with a local church. You're made to be in communion with the local saints, and you're made to be in service together as one extended body. Even if it isn't this local church, you need to join a local church. You need to plug in. You need to commit. And I know that's scary sometimes for those of you who've been burned in the past. But I'm telling you, for your growth, a branch will not grow if it's not attached to the vine. A Christian who is separated from the church is not attached to a vine. Do you hear me? Does that make sense? That's my quick little aside. So I want to encouragement to you is this. Get plugged in, commit, and join a local church body. Okay, that's my side topic. Today's message deals with controversial subjects in the church. So I was about to have Eric and Danny preach on it. I was going to make sure they did this. I was trying to time it all out perfectly, but it didn't work out that way. Just kidding. In all seriousness, two main topics in text today have been controversial for some time in the life of the church. And when it comes to controversial topics, there are some who wish that I wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. They say, can't we just stick with the stuff that makes us all feel good and that there isn't any controversy over? Why do we have to talk about difficult things? And yes, that would be much easier, but that wouldn't make us Bible teachers. That would make us teachers of whatever topic we feel good about. Here at Waypoint, we believe that in this that in this beautiful, incredible word of God that has been miraculously given to us and preserved for us. So we want to preach from all of it, even the hard topics. Others wonder why I don't talk on more controversial topics more often. They love controversy and they want to spend more time telling everybody who disagrees with them why they're wrong. And there are people who love to do that. I love the fact that James just laughed really hard right there. Because <laughs> he's like me, I'm the same way. I love challenging people and be like, see, this is why you're wrong, or this is why you think incorrectly about this. And there are people like, oh, I don't want to think about that. Believe it or not, that's not healthy either. When you preach through the Bible, you find that most of the, what the Bible brings up is straightforward and easy to understand, relatively non-controversial if you're a believer. The controversial parts, by contrast, are kind of few, but we preach through the whole Bible, new and old, and we go book by book. So we preach the controversial topics when they come up in the Bible. So for those of you who aren't aware, our system here, we typically go through a whole book of the Bible at a time, and we go through this book, we typically go Old and then New Testament, Old and then New Testament, and we go through the whole book. So some of you might be like, well, we're not preaching controversial topics enough. Some of you are saying we preach controversial topics too often. We're just going through the book of the Bible, guys. Just saying. You can blame the Bible. Two main controversial topics in the message today. Probably more than actually two, but I'll simplify it and say two main topics. And we're going to spend most of our time dealing with the gifts of the Spirit, but I want to quickly first address the passage where it says in verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. How many of you went like, what did he just read? Or did he just read that out loud? I mean, I know that says that in the Bible, but nobody talks about that in church nowadays, right? So he actually read that out loud, right? So yeah, some of you guys were like that, let's be honest, right? I remember I, even, even knowing it was coming, I was like, ooh, he just read that out loud. So I'm going to let my former professor, Richard Pratt, um, he was one of my favorite professors at RTS, and I'm going to let him kind of give where most of this is coming from, because he's so much smarter than me, and so much smarter than most other biblical scholars out there. So I'm going to let him do most of the answering on this topic. Um, we did some research, I read some N.T. Ride, Richard Pratt, D.A. Carson, read a whole bunch of different commentaries, and they kind of universally think of this generally along these lines when it comes to this text. The instruction to weigh carefully what is said by a prophet raises a particular issue related to wives. 
it is likely that here, as in chapter 11, according to Richard Pratt, Paul had in mind wives, not women in general. How should wives honor their husbands who prophesy and at the same time weigh what their husbands say? How did Pratt get that? Three times Paul said that women should remain quiet, women should remain silent, and they're not allowed to speak. And it's disgraceful for women to speak at church. Yet, he also uses a qualifying statement by adding if they want to inquire. It must be remembered that Paul did not believe that women should not speak in church at all. Guys, remember earlier, I spoke about this last week, in chapter 11, he says that women should pray and prophesy. So, wait, 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 wait. Confusion here. If he says in one hand women shouldn't speak in the church, then how can they pray and prophesy, which is speaking in church? They're not remaining silent, they're praying and they're prophesying. So obviously there's something missing, right? Rather, they should not ask questions. By suggesting that they ask their questions of their own husbands at home, he also implied that their husbands were the ones who knew the answers. So in this context, he's even implying that women should not be asking their husbands who are giving prophecies at the time about their prophecy. Does that make sense? Let me give you another example. What was happening here was during worship services, the men and women were sitting separately. Right? That was custom in the time, all the churches would do that. Women would sit here, men would sit there, okay? And what was happening was a man would stand up and they would give a word of prophecy. You know, I believe that God is telling me this, this, and this. And the woman was like, is that my husband? What, what, what you doing? What you saying over there? You know, just, oh, I, I can't hear you. Is that right? What's he saying? You know, and it would cause a disorderliness in worship. It would cause a questioning at the time of the prophecy. So it's best to read this passage as we turn to the issue of wives honoring their husbands, which was a similar concept that was happening in chapter 11 about wearing head covering in worship when you pray and when you prophesy. It's noted that it's a cultural context, a way of honoring a husband by listening to them and questioning them later when they got home. It's a way to edify the church and a way for orderliness in worship. This order for science therefore is closely associated with the requirement to test prophecy. In effect, Paul told wives not to question their husband's prophecies in the public meeting. Instead, they would inquire as if they would ask their husbands at home. Paul's reason for this, the same as in chapter 11, is disgraceful for a wife to behave otherwise. Just as covering their heads in worship brought honor to their husbands in the Corinthian church, so it was important for wives not to embarrass their husbands by challenging prophecies in public. Does that make sense so far? It's an interesting interpretation, and I love this. One of the key elements to this interpretation is that Dr. Pratt came up with is this principle that Scripture interprets Scripture, right? He knew elsewhere in Scripture that women prayed and prophesied and spoke out loud in church, and they were actually told to, not condemned to. So a literal interpretation of that passage was not what was intended. Does that make sense? So Dr. Pratt also knew that the rest of this passage was referring, the overall message of this passage was referring to orderliness in worship and unity in love. So all of this led to this interpretation. I love this. This is something for you to learn and for us to understand. It's when we see a passage of scripture that doesn't make sense to us. Or if we see a passage of scripture that's only referenced maybe in one way in one time, a certain manner, like the head coverings. It's easy to jump to a conclusion that says, well, that's what the Bible says. But instead, what uh, Dr. Pratt teaches us is we need to learn how to correctly interpret Scripture. By one, letting Scripture interpret Scripture and saying, what is the overall message going on? What is the context? What is the culture? And what is also the point of Paul's passage here? And as we look into that, as we see that Scripture interpreting Scripture, it says women are called to, to prophesy and to pray. 
So he can't just mean be silent. And then also look in the context of he's giving um, orders on how to be orderly, how to not have chaos in worship, and how to honor each other. Then we come to this interpretation. Does that make sense? You guys nod your head with me if you understand what I'm saying. If you don't understand, you can go like this. That's okay. Good job. I'm glad you understand, Joy. Moving on to the next topic then. Talk about gifts of the Spirit, mainly tongues and prophecy. Now, I know that when I say tongues and prophecy, some of you flip out a little bit. Especially if you're fairly new to the church. You're going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is why I don't go to church. Tongues? Now they're going to be like pulling out snakes and stuff. And you're like, I'm not okay with that. Others might be sitting here like, he's talking about tongues and prophecy? Cool, where's my ribbon? Anybody? No? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> For those of you who don't get that, old school Pentecostal churches would love having ribbons and worshiping with ribbons and stuff like that. I'm just throwing it out there. I wanted to see how many people got that joke. See, there are some of you who freak out. They're like, oh my gosh, we're talking about tongues and prophecy and gifts of the Spirit. And that makes me a little bit like cringe and uncomfortable. And you're like, don't talk about that stuff. Is he going to get weird? Is he going to start asking for snakes and weird stuff to happen? Or others of you guys are sitting here like, woohoo, finally! It's been a long time. Get my ribbon out, get my flag out. I'm going to dance. It's going to be awesome. Guys, I want to give you some context to this passage first. I want you guys to know that all Christians need to believe in spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4, 7-8 says that spiritual gifts were given to the church by Jesus when he ascended as a way of executing his victory over Satan. It's the power of Jesus at work in the church. Now there are special type of gifts, some call them sign gifts or charismatic gifts, which appear kind of sensational and miraculous. Tongues, speaking in languages unknown to the speaker, prophecy, words of knowledge, um, this, these kind of gifts. And for those kind of gifts, there are four basic approaches to these supernatural gifts. And we got this from Wayne Grudem, okay? So four basic approaches when it comes to those kind of gifts. Well, number one, there's an approach called cessationist, right? Kind of came from the word ceasing, ceasing? Where tongues and prophecies ceased after the time of the apostles. They see that the supernatural gifts were given before there was a Bible, and when the Bible came, the need for supernatural sign gifts, as they call it, ceased. They refer to 1 Corinthians 13 when it says, when that which is perfect or complete has come, then that which is part will be done away with, will be done away. So they say the Bible is the perfect, so the sign gifts are no longer needed. A little bit of issue with that interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13 is I wouldn't say the Bible is the perfect, I'd say it'd be Jesus, the coming of Jesus. So there's a little bit of misinterpretation there, but that's their viewpoint, the cessationists. Other viewpoint is uh, Pentecostal, which is the opposite end of the spectrum of the cessationists, okay? So you have on the one hand, let's just say on the left-hand side, you have the cessationists. On the far right-hand side, then you have the Pentecostal, the opposite side. Gifts are normal and operative for all Christians. They teach you to receive the Holy Spirit at some distinct moment after your conversion. And when you do this, you'll speak in tongues as a sign that you have the Holy Spirit. He says, you the, that's the belief of the Pentecostal. There's some problems with this, because I believe that you receive the Holy Spirit when you're saved. And Paul said plainly at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 that not everyone has the same spiritual gifts. Okay, so we have so far cessationists, Pentecostal. And then on the one hand, we have something called charismatic. It's kind of in the middle towards the right. They believe that all the gifts are in operation, but not all Christians need practice them or have been given them, or not all of them. The preaching of the gospel should be ordinarily be accompanied by signs and wonders. 
kind of, this is kind of a third wave. Uh, there's kind of a third wave of this movement happening right now. It started off in the early 1900s with a wave of Pentecostal movement, followed by kind of a new charismatic renewal, and now there's currently a third wave of this kind of charismatic understanding. The fourth group is a kind of an undefined group. These are people who are not convinced by cessationists, um, yet they're not comfortable with the practices of the charismatic. They like to focus on evangelism, Bible study, and doctrine. However, they appreciate what charismatic churches have brought to the world. J.D. Greer likes to say, I want the head of a Baptist, the heart of a Pentecostal, and the feet of the Jehovah's Witness. That's what he says. JD himself, who puts himself in this category, refers to this category as open but cautious, or the hesitationist. They're open to the spiritual gifts. They don't want to put, but they don't want to put God in a box, but they're cautious, believing that much of what gets called the Holy Spirit today is just hyped up frenetic silliness. So you guys see the four, four kind of approaches to the gifts of the Spirit. Do you guys see that so far? Right? We have the cessationists. We have the Pentecostals, we have the Hesitationists, and we have the Charismatics. You guys with me so far? Okay? Now, before we go any further on the topic of spiritual gifts, I want to make clear that spiritual gifts is not the main point of this passage. So I want to make that very clear. Chapter 14 completes Paul's discussion on spiritual gifts in worship. In chapter 12, he focused first on the unity and diversity that existed in the gifts, very much like a body, that we need all the pieces together. Next, he turned to the importance of love as the greatest grace given to believers in chapter 13. Here in 14, Paul is basically arguing that the principles of love and edification must guide in the use of the gifts and all elements of worship. In other words, love and unity is the point. Love and the building up and the edification of the church is the point. Love is the guide for life and worship, no matter the gifts. So the let love be your guide. Do you hear that? So before we dive into a little bit of the nuances, I want to make sure first and foremost that we get what's most important out of the text. Are you hearing me? What's most important out of the text is that, one, you're needed. Your gifts are needed. Who you are is needed in the body of Christ but you need to be driven by love and unity. That gifts are meant to build up, not to tear down. Do you hear me? So let's look at some of these gifts, specifically the gifts of tongues and prophecy. The word tongues sounds like a weird word, right? Tongues, uh, uh, tongues. That's, I just, that's what I think of, right? Just tongues, it just sounds weird. But it's really just languages. It's not an uncommon word. It just sounds weird, but it's just foreign languages unknown to the speaker. That's what all it means. And the major purpose was the redemption of the curse of Babel. And I don't want you to miss this, because this is beautiful. Three times in Scripture, there's no language confusion. Right before the Tower of Babel, Revelation 5, when they all speak the same language, and in the middle of Acts chapter 2, when God gives a sign that the road to Revelation 5 has begun. In Acts 2, they're in the temple. The Holy Spirit comes on them, and they begin to speak in languages. Everyone is amazed for two reasons. First, everyone is hearing them speak the gospel in their own language. Incredible. But secondly, they're using other languages in the temple besides Hebrew. The Hebrew tongue was the only language used in the temple. So here, this tongue's primary purpose is to indicate that the gospel is not for Jews only, but for the whole world. 
Let me see that again. Yeah. Tongue's primary purpose is to indicate that gospel is not for the Jews only, but for the whole world, and that the curse of Babel has been redeemed, and the road to Revelation 5 has begun. Do you see that? The purpose of tongue is to make this bold, shouted proclamation, wave the banner that says the curse of Babel has been undone. Man trying to reach God on his own power didn't work. It separated mankind, but now the, the, the blessing, the good news of Revelation 5 of man and God in worship together, this unity is happening, and it started here in Acts chapter 2, and it's ultimately culminated in Revelation chapter 5. And the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for every one of us. 1 Corinthians 4.22 says, Tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers. And he quotes Isaiah in this, I'll speak with other tongues. God is announcing to the Jews that the gospel is not just for them, but for the whole world. That's the proclamation of tongues. Now there's other descriptions of tongues given. They're spoken to, four, chapter 14, verse 2, the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God. So there's a prayer in tongues. There's a singing in tongues. There's a blessing and praising God. There's a giving thanks. And it could work something like this. You're praising God in a language unknown to you. Acts 2, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Acts 2, 13. Some say it's used as a private prayer language. Well, initially, I mean, some say this is also... I'm still diving in the second direction. Now, it's, some say it's used as a private prayer language. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This passage in Romans is most commonly used for this practice with tongues as a private prayer language. I believe, actually, this is a little bit of a misinterpretation of this passage. I believe this passage is more to mean that we have a mediator in the Spirit, and our confidence is found in that. Now, I am not saying that I'm against prayers, uh, tongues as a prayer language. I'm, I'm just saying that scripture, I don't think, is an accurate, necessarily, portrayal of prayer, tongues as a prayer language. When it comes to gift of tongues as a prayer language, can I just be honest with you guys, is I've never been given this gift. I know of others who pray in tongues, but I've never prayed in tongues. And they often say to me that um, they pray in tongues when it's times of deep spiritual battle. And let me give you just a really quick history on my journey. When I was a senior in high school, I grew up in a uh, PCA, Presbyterian, conservative church my whole life, right? In my senior year of high school, I read a book by, called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit by a guy named Jack Deere. Um, and then it's Surprised by the Power of God. And now all of a sudden I'm like, What's called, what is all this, what? That's exactly the words that came out of my mouth. And uh, so I was like, what is all this stuff about spirit and charismatic? And I'm so confused. So I went on like a three-year hunt, visiting every charismatic Pentecostal church. I went to every vineyard conference. I went to every vineyard church. I went to every assembly of God. I went to non-denominational. I went to every Pentecostal charismatic church I could go to. I read literally hundreds of books trying to figure this stuff out, talk to all these different people. And one thing that I consistently prayed for, I'm just gonna be honest with you guys, for the three years is for the praying tongues or the gift of tongues in any way. Never happened, I'm just saying, to my hurt heart, no. But here's the deal, never in the Bible does it say that every single one of us has that gift. Do you hear me? Can I say that again? Never in the Bible does it say that. I've had people tell me over and over again, multi, I kid you not during this search, they say, Lawrence, you're actually not a Christian. And I said, okay, that hurts. 
I've had people who would actually say something like this, could you just imagine how much better of a Christian you would be if you prayed in tongues? That doesn't feel right either. (laughs) Right? Guys, can I tell you this? That is called a gift. A gift is something that you've been given. Not something that you can make happen, facilitate happen, but it's something you've been given. Do you hear that? I'd venture to say, though, I believe that practically with this gift, that most of the, the most powerful encounters, supernatural encounters, center around the gift of tongues, if you think about it in the Bible. Right? Man, can I tell you practically what, this, what we could do with this gift? You know how pumped I would be if you guys were telling me, one of you guys are like, hey, I'm out sharing the gospel, and all of a sudden someone from another country hears it clearly expressed in their heart language. Oh, please and yes. I'd be so pumped. You're out there like, oh yeah, Lawrence, I'm out sharing the gospel, and all of a sudden, man, I'm speaking in fluent Mandarin. And I'm like, do you speak Mandarin? No. Awesome! I'd be like, that'd be so cool! That'd just be the coolest thing ever! You know how awesome it would be if one day at Waypoint you started speaking to your neighbor who happens to be sitting next to you, and your neighbor's from Syria, and all of a sudden your neighbor looks at you and goes, you speak fluent Arabic? How amazing would that be? Other than joy. That wouldn't be as cool for joy. It's still cool, but not as cool. <laughs> Guys, can I tell you that we express our desire for this as we often worship in other languages here at Waypoint Church? Is when we worship in other languages here, we often express the same expression of tongues is that the, the gospel is for all people. And we look forward to the day of Revelation 5. But I will never let this topic or this issue lead to division or a form of hierarchalization that I've seen people have before. I've heard of so many people who have been hurt, put down, criticized for not practicing this gift. A gift that was supposed to demonstrate the unity of the church and the universality of the church has become a way to divide the church. And that's not what we will allow happen. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me so far? 1 Corinthians 14, 19 says this, but in the church I would rather five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in the tongue. Moving on to prophecy. This is a tricky word. It means roughly saying what God wants in the situation, right? Prophecy, in very rough definition, could mean saying what God wants to say in a certain situation, usually based in scripture. God says this, and this is what you must do. Sometimes it means more. There could be knowledge involved describing a situation in which a speaker might have no evidential kind of experiential knowledge about. Maybe a snowing a situation, knowing what to pray, supernaturally revealed knowledge, right? So for example, it could be something along the lines of me knowing something about somebody that I shouldn't normally know, but I'm able to communicate. Now there's a number one objection for if people who, who have against prophecy in any way, shape, or form. The, the number one objection of a cessationist has against prophecy is if you speak for God, that means you can add to the Bible. Right? If you're saying this is what God says, this is prophecy, I'm speaking as a mouthpiece of God, then you can add to the Bible. That's the number one kind of objection that people have to prophecy. You with me so far? In the New Testament, prophecies are not the same as Old Testament prophetic revelation or New Testament apostolic revelation. Old Testament prophecies spoke for God. The New Testament apostles are in a class by themselves. Acts 21.4, some disciples made a prophecy to Paul and said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You'll be captured there. But Paul went anyway. So it was, if, Paul, if an Old Testament prophet told Paul not to do something, he would not have done it. See the distinction there. 
In Acts 21 also, um, Paul gets a warning, but he disobeys, he goes against the prophetic warning and realizes the prophets got it wrong. In 1 Corinthians 4, 14, 29, it says, we're to weigh the prophecies. Something that you never would have had to do with the prophets of old. If Isaiah, or those, those were the prophets who were set apart to speak for God. So there's, 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 there's prophets of old that comes with authoritative speaking versus prophets now. Or a word of prophecy now. There's a difference between the prophecy and the word of God. So let me say that again. There's a difference, major difference, between a prophecy and the word of God. As a matter of fact, I firmly believe that most prophecies should be pointing people to the word of God, who is the ultimate voice of the Lord. Now, this idea of prophecy and knowledge should never, ever contradict scripture. It should always point you to it. It should never point you away from it. If someone comes up to you and says, they believe God is telling me to tell you that you should stop reading the Bible, stop preaching the gospel, and you should move to Walla Walla, Washington. Probably not from God. Can I just say that out there? Do you guys understand what I'm saying? I don't know why I had to throw out Walla Walla. If you're from Walla Walla, no offense. I just wanted to say Walla Walla, Washington. Prophecy should never replace Scripture. You need to make sure that scripture is always higher. I can say I have a word from God and share it as God's kindness. And here's, here's the beautiful thing. Here's a, way to, to, here's a good way of understanding this. I can say this. I can say, guys, I have a word from God. And the word from God is to tell you that um, God's kindness will pierce through your hardness. Right? His kindness is going to reach you in, through your hardness. That's a good word. Don't get me wrong. It's true. But it comes from the word of God. And the word of God should be credited and pointed to, not yourself. Does that make sense? If I could tell you that I, say, I just have this word from God, I believe it's God's kindness, it's going to pierce through your hardness, and it's going to lead you to repentance. That's a good, true statement. But if I just give credit to where it comes from, the word of God says this, James. The word of God says this. If the word of God can say it like that, then you should give credit to the word and point people to the word, not to yourself. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me on that? A word of knowledge should only, should only serve to point you to Christ and the word. It should be helpful, but don't give it authority over teaching of the word. So what are we to do with prophecy? You weigh the evidence. I had a, perf- a person prophesy that my best friend, we were together, this is about 20 years ago, and a person prophesied that my best friend would become a millionaire in the next 10 years. Uh, this person said that uh, this is one of, those, one of those searching churches that we went to, and he came up and gave words of prophecy, and he said to my best friend sitting next to me, he said, you're gonna be a millionaire, a loaded millionaire in 10 years. It's been 20 years later, he's still waiting for it to come true. We're still holding on to that one though. He, he won't let go of that one. He's like, please, please be true. Remember that prophecy is a gift also of the Holy Spirit. It is given. So we are completely dependent on the Spirit. The Spirit apportions his gift to each one individually as he wills. And we're not told that everyone receives his gift. And I love this, because this is a new covenant revelatory gift, it's processed and communicated us valuably. We should never use authoritative language, like thus says the Lord, when sharing what we think may be a prophetic word. Rather, we should see something like, I think the Lord might be saying, and allow others to test for themselves. Does that make sense? Because we're valuable, because we're human, and if I feel an inclination in my heart that says, man, I just feel in my heart, I feel like the Spirit's laid upon me to say to so-and-so, hey, I just feel this is happening, I feel you're struggling with this, I feel this is what's going on, and I want to tell you this. 
Can I tell you that there's no way in all confidence I can say this is 100% God speaking and none of me. So with my knowledge, with my humility, I need to say I believe, I feel that this is what God's doing, not say God is definitely doing this. Can I tell you how many abuses have occurred in the church because of that? We need to walk in humility. Know that it's a gift of the Spirit. Humility is key in growing in the use of any gift, especially this one. We need not fear enduring this growing process as we go forward. As we seek to intentionally increase our faith through prayer, preparation, and practice, it is worth the effort because prophecy edifies, encourages, and consoles the saints of God. Which is why Paul recommended we do it. Hear me when I say, when I talk about prophecy, guys, is I truly believe that prophecy from the Holy Spirit is often a word of God's heart to us. And he chooses to use it, sometimes in miraculous ways. Sometimes that God's going to say something to one of you who's at the right time. That's happened to me. My heart's been blessed. When somebody came up to me and goes, Lawrence, I just want you to know that I know you're struggling with this. I don't know why. I just felt God telling me that. And I just want you to know that God doesn't think that way of you. And that hit me at the perfect time, at the right moment. Man, do I think God does that 100%? Yes. Because he loves us. And because his word said he would. Now, I, the idea, guys, is this. How do we walk in this delicate balance of saying, I will never put anything above scripture and God's revelation to us, but I also want to walk eagerly seeking out the way God can speak to us and move in this. What are we to do with these gifts? Now, there's some three main points I want us to get. Number one, we need to be guided by love and unity. Gifts are made to edify the church and advance the gospel. If it isn't doing both, then they are not gifts from the Father. Do you hear that? Do you guys get that? As we approach the gifts of the Spirit, we're supposed to say, God, as you're moving, whether it's supernatural, whether it's just something we see normal, but it's still supernatural because it's goodness, it's grace, it's the gift. We need to say, God, is this being guided by love and unity? Is it edifying the church? Is it advancing the gospel? Can I tell you something? Edifying the church means the local church body that you're committed to under authority of. Are you with me? Is it edifying the church? Is it growing you? Is it consoling you? Is it encouraging you? Is it advancing the gospel? Two, gifts are made to point us to the giver and not to the gifts themselves. Gifts are made to point us to the giver and not to the gifts themselves. Guys, when I give my son a toy, I want my son to love the toy. I want him to love the gift that I give him, but I want him to know that the toy came out of the overflow of my enjoyment and my love for him. When Josiah gets new sand in the sandbox, or when Josiah receives a Dorito, I want him to know from whence the Dorito came. I want him to say, Dad, Dad, thank you so much for the Dorito. I want him to say, Dad, thank you so much for the, the gum. I want, when, I give Josiah, when I give Hudson his little fishing pole, uh, he's gonna be like, oh, look at the fishing pole. I want him to be like, excited, but I want him to come to me, come to love me, I want him to hug me, I want him to understand that I'm the one who gave it to him. I want him to build intimacy with me. Guys, the gifts of the Spirit is not for you to glorify, ooh, I'm spiritual. Not to make a hierarchy of who's more spiritual than anybody else. It's made to say, do you know the Father better? Do you love Him? Are you growing more intimate with Him? Do you see that He's the giver of every good gift? Are you driven by love and unity? Do you see the giver? And three, guys, hear this. Now, this is, man, this is good. Gifts of the Spirit, absent the fruit of the Spirit, 
is not of the Spirit. <clears throat> really quickly, let's say that again. Gifts of the Spirit, absent the fruit of the Spirit, is not of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance. Uh, me and Danny were just talking about that. Forbearance is the NIV translation. It's not, the, it's not um, patience, as, as most of you guys might know it as. It says love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Guys, if the gifts of the Spirit are being manifest without those fruits of the Spirit, then it's not of the Spirit. They go hand in hand. They go together. They're meant to be practiced together. So if you see gifts of the Spirit that's not leading to the patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Hear that self-control, by the way. Because I've been in some places where there was no self-control happening. Even gifts of the Spirit was happening. Self-control. Love. Joy. Peace. Guys, can I tell you something? That the heart of our Father, the heart of our Father is, is a heart of, of love and unity for the church body. Well, Paul's message to us in 1 Corinthians was when giving us instructions in orderliness and worship. Why does he care? Because he knows the issues that we're going to run into. He knows that we're human <clears throat> and we fight and we divide and we hurt and we fight and we divide and we hurt again. We fight and we divide. And what Paul wants us to understand is that we need to be driven by a higher calling. And we need to be driven by love. Learning to forgive operating in power by the Holy Spirit. And here's, the, here's also the, all the, the thing that wraps this up, that ties us back to earlier chapter 11 and 12, is every one of us are needed. All of our gifts come together. All of our skills, all of our unique body parts, all this, as we, as we come together with all our gifts that God's empowered us to have, in unity comes how we can actually see something happen in this world. Can I be honest with you guys? Have you guys ever looked out and just saw the daunting task of how crazy this world is and stop and just be like, there's no way possible. God, you called us to make all things new. You said, okay, through Jesus, he's going to use what Jesus has done. He's going to use us as his instruments of making all things new. We're called to redeem and to reconcile. And you stop and you're like, Jesus, that's a pretty ridiculous task you put us for in front of us. Like, I look around the world and I'm like, no, no, this world is so messed up. There's no way we as sinful, messed up Christians could possibly redeem, could possibly reconcile. <coughs> and it's daunting. It's bigger than us. But here's our confidence. That he gives us power. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He gives us the same power that the, the, the acts, the, the, the apostles walked in. It's the same spirit moving in us. And that should give us confidence because that same power bound together in love and unity in the church will see this world changed. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great gifts. God, that you've bestowed upon all of us, you've gifted all of us in unique ways, you've gifted all of us in different ways, but you've gifted us all so that we can come and be one body together in love and unity for the purposes of advancing your kingdom, <coughs> for the purpose of seeing this messed up world redeemed and renewed. 
So we thank you for empowering us. We thank you for this incredible calling. God, you've given us so much more than just a calling of just living life and keeping up with the Joneses and just being, um, seeing our little American dream come true. But God, you called us to greater vision, greater passion, greater purpose. And then you've empowered us to accomplish it. So thank you for that calling upon us and thank you for gifting us. God, we want to walk in love and unity for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.